Road to the Wise. We are an explicit God blast. We are an explicit We are an explicit podcast. Tackling content with adult themes. As well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. I don't know where the fuck I went with this. My full murloc. I don't know. catch up we're we're gonna finish the book next week so this week it's through chapter 82 of pierce brown's light bringer hey there this is cross i'm pj And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should definitely be thinking of us at this point as your intoxicating weekly book club. I brought this up before, Crossland, and I'm bringing it up again now. I know we have our reasons. I know we we have unique things that we have to say at the end of every one of those. But can we just record a canned intro? <laughs> we can just put- Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not, because every once in a while, every time. unhinged shit happens, and it's so much fun sometimes. <laughs> it's the way that we keep the intro spicy, because this part is kind of, I mean, it's repetitive, but intentionally so. Yeah. So, no. Okay. To, to be clear. Yeah. But today, as PJ had mentioned, is our penultimate episode talking about the chapters of Lightbringer, and we are going to be talking about the chapters numbered 78 through 82 and I am so excited to to get into this for so many reasons, and there's so much to say, even about such a small section. But PJ, we are both not having a cocktail today. We That's true. I have still a lot of wine from my wedding. Uh, so I have wine from table number two, which I think is the <laughs> table that my family was sitting at. It's... The head table was two tables, and table one was Kaylin's, and table two was mine, I believe. And those were petite Syrahs from Bogle, right? Yep. Yep. Nice. Nice. Nothing super Tasty. intense or crazy or anything. It was a bottle to strip the label off of and put table numbers on. Uh, but I, petite Syrah is one of my favorite varietals, and I, it's the reason why I love Phantom so much. Mm -hmm. because it's a big petite Syrah inside of the blend yep exactly so I'm happy to have just that just desserts just desserts what are you drinking I similarly I am having a wine of course what I'm having is a 2019 Val Ravon is it's got like a little raven guy on it he's got a little crown on him Mm. super cute but like emo, cute emo. You know what I mean? I'm in. Yep. You got me. You got yeah. me. The marketing, the branding. Uh, but it's a Sonoma County cab from 2019. And I was just doing a little bit of research just to see if they like bought or grew. It appears like they grow. They own some anchorage and purchase some. So they do sort of a blending situation of different grapes for a lot of their wines. But they have some that are straight up. So. Yeah. And it's tasty. So. Very good. Yeah, I I really like it. I had a glass last night out of this and it was pretty good, but I definitely need to breathe a little bit more. So that's part of the reason that I decided that I was going to do wine. Then you're like, I'll totally join you. And I tried a little bit this afternoon, like just like a little pour just to make sure that it didn't like go bad and it was perfect. So the day's worth of air. It's fantastic. Awesome. 
So easy peasy on the drinks this week. No back half. We didn't take a shot beforehand because there's a it's weird with wine. (laughs) So, but with that out of the way, PJ, before we talk about the chapters, we've we've got a lot to talk about here. But how do you feel about what I feel like is the proper start to part four brothers? Yeah, I totally agree. Given your conversation about it last week makes a whole lot of sense to me now, too. Mm hmm. So my feelings on it are kind of frantic now, understanding that we don't have two episodes after this, <laughs> like mm-hmm. this is almost the end. It doesn't feel that way. It feels like there's a whole lot to, to get through yet. Like um, a whole nother book. Uh, yeah. Th- that's kind <laughs> of where I'm at with this. I wonder if this won't feel like the end of a story like the previous books have because it was intended to be a single book initially. Yeah. I mean, I think that we have a resolution to come. Of course we have, you know, ending time and denouement and all kinds of other things to, to kind of go through. But yeah, it does feel like there are some things that we've started to close the circle on, right. That we were completing the loop on like Quicksilver, for instance, and Mateo we've, we are kind of beginning to, section off parts of the story so that it feels like we can lead to a full resolution so there there are things that of course we'll we'll see resolve in mm-hmm. the coming chapters but um other than that in sort of the panic that you're feeling how do you feel about the chapters themselves i absolutely adore the way diomedes carries himself and has proven to be exactly what he academically claims to be i guess theoretically claims to be it's the what's the marcus Aurelius quote stop talking about the man that you want to be and be it Mm -hmm. right he is just the embodiment of that yeah and it's great to see cassius and darrow interact the way they have been fuck lysander (laughs) (laughs) commonly held w yeah (laughs) yeah this All week that. in particular is kind of a nasty one for Lysander. I'm not going to lie. Like he he is painting himself into a corner. I or he has painted he, himself. He into has a corner. been painted into a corner. I think that's a, a more accurate way to put it, because I don't think yeah. he really has the agency that he would like to have. He is he is a puppet to a certain degree, and he he's because he doesn't have a spine <laughs> well yes and no <laughs> like but you know what i mean there's also like yeah. he understands the consequences of right yeah the actions that he wants to take yeah or seems to want to take so I don't he's know. definitely aware of yeah. of sort of things but yeah Cool. Well, we're going to talk a lot about that. A lot of this is sort of table setting for for this and sort of the the end of the book. So I'm super curious to see what we think as we move through these five chapters. Might be a shorter episode than typical just because it is less. But at the same time, I have a lot to say, especially about the last chapter. So we'll we'll see. We'll see. (laughs) Um, With that, let's get into chapter 78. Darrow, the monster in the storm. I personally really appreciate how this chapter starts out with Sebro basically being uh, over the horn, talking about the results 
of Volga's ascension among the Obsidian. This is another reason that I think that it makes for a really good split as far as parts go, because you end with her basically like taking the crown at the end of Stoneside and feeling that resolution into the sort of here's what's actually happened as a result of her being elected. And there's sort of that that kind of like nice thing that with like a little tiny break, it would almost give us this artificial passage of time, even if it's only a day or hours or whatever, yeah. that makes it feel tangible. There, um, there's physical distance that grows between our characters. And I totally, totally agree with you coming off the yeah. back of this. Um, it's the smallest of gripes. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, I, I'm not an accomplished... Uh, no yeah me neither so what the fuck don't don't necessarily take my advice but if you were doing a tv show i think that's how you would do it is end on that note begin with sort of the table setting of volga and then go into this next episode right that we're sort of walking through right now Mm -hmm. that feels like a logical progression to me if you were to break this out into episodes which is why we do break it out into episodes yeah so this or did you did you want to talk about Severo specifically. I I did I did want to talk a little bit more about Severo. I think that in particular, I really appreciate the sort of tone that he has here, or sort of the the voice that he speaks with to Darrow in this case, because it feels like he's coming back into his own as a leader as opposed to the sort of raw nerve that it feels like he's been for this book and part of Iron Gold, sort of the jaded sensibility that he had, and especially one who actually really cares about his lieutenants. It's it's a different it is a similar return to form, but it is a different like skin that Severo is wearing. There's actual confidence is sort of instead of bravado. And I, I see this as like a manifestation, an acceptance finally of Fitchner and of Ares and sort of his inheritance, which has been kind of a big theme that we've talked about over the course of the story in Severo. I, I had a similar but different read, I guess. This felt like such a vastly different voice that Pierce is writing in with this scene. And it, granted, it's it's conversational and informal, but it also somehow, I don't know exactly the right term that I'm trying to think of or the feelings that I'm feeling, but it, it almost made Severo seem less mature in the way that it was written. And I, I don't, I don't think that's the right read on it. I don't think, but I think it's also the first time that we've heard like Severo tell a story. That's you know what true. I mean? In a in a weird way, like this is tangibly the first time. That's why he's like, uh, "I'm not done," and like kind of is able to jump back in to like own his place. Yeah, yeah, it's different. I didn't think it was bad by any means. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely. But, I agree with you on different. I don't think it it's maturity necessarily because I do. I personally feel like it's a more mature presentation in some ways, and then there is sort of the will hearken to the title of the part there is a sort of brotherly tone that's shared more here yeah i guess i'm I'm not saying maturity in his attitude or anything like that but in his in his speaking ability i guess Yeah. yeah He does. He does kind of default to like a wham bam comic book style recap of of the it, events exactly that okay okay i can understand that but he was just so excited you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes fair. I speak very formally, but if I get really excited, I kind of get like a little a little goofy with it, as one Thomas Boomhauer might say. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thomasism, Tom, Thomasisms. 
boomisms have snuck into my vocabulary. <laughs> Good. Damn Boom the man. Is much more on the pulse of modern no. vernacular than either of us are. He's, he's inventing his own pulse. Let's be very clear. Yeah. Boom is his own monster in the best way. And here's a free ad. Go check out High Key Obsessed Podcast. <laughs> yeah, here Thomas specifically Boomhauer. is a free ad. <laughs> <laughs> so we we find out of course that basically the path for Severo is going to be staying with the daughters and kind of helping rally that side of the the conflict in the Volk and with Volga by and large and so he's separated off here in the moment and we're left with sort of three the three razor masters of whom you know we could call Diomedes the adopted brother if we wanted to but we we find them in the cafeteria and Darrow sets down a cup of coffee calf in front of diomedes and he doesn't fucking take it and that is that's the most narky thing that diomedes has ever done you know what a narc i get it it feels right for him it does it, it does it, but it, i i am not in the slightest surprise <laughs> i we i do like just want to point out that you mistakenly called it co- coffee but we know that coffee does exist Mm-hmm. In this universe, I mean, this universe is our universe. Coffee exists. This is just something to st- give caffeine, but it's not coffee. I'm excited for Darrow to sit down with a nice cup of Joe when he gets back home at some point. Because I remember, I remember the reverence that they held coffee in the mines. They would trade for it sometimes. Diana would. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm guessing, yeah. guessing it's a shelf life thing. It probably is. But what's what's interesting, so page 12, I'm looking at this in the Kindle because I was like, I swear to God, it was coffee. But fun fact, so stage, page 12, right away at the beginning of the book, he chews on a calf stick, swigs his coffee, and cocks his head back. So a calf stick being different. So he's he's getting caffeine twice there, hmm. which is which is funny. But... Yeah, part of me, because they do mention thermos and like pouring it in, thinks that it's got to be pretty similar. And I can't help but wonder, especially because of the perspective that each of these take place in, if it's not just Darrow's word for coffee. Or caffeine in general, like it's his slang. Maybe. I, I'm willing to bet it's something synthetic that's kind of a it coffee stand-in with better you're prob- shelf life. You're probably right. Probably. It's military that- r- rations of some sort. That tracks, especially because they're in the marcher at first. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Cool. But yeah. Diomedes not drinking coffee is the biggest narc energy <laughs> that the man has ever put out. Like, he's put out some serious narc vibes, but this one, this one's the most narky of them all. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, I can't imagine anything more raw-like than being radically sober, you know? And wow. I, mean, I mean, I mean, yeah, right. sober from any sort of stimulant or drug of any sort, including caffeine. Hmm. It makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, I don't know tracks. if they drink alcohol. The, the Raws in general. That's a great question. Mining through the memory banks. I'm, I'm wondering if Romulus and Darrow had a drink at any point. I'm also thinking about the dinner. Right. Mm-hmm. With Lysander and Iron Gold. I don't feel I don't like think they, they had do. And but I, I am seriously questioning it. I'd be very curious if but you there, know the answer. Please reach the, out to us. There is the plum wine that uh, Lysander 
is impressed by. Was that from the raw stores? There is. They do drink out in the rim. And I, I do, yes, because he's going to bring wine back for Apollonius. Yeah. Or he talks but, about mentioning it, questioning like what Apollonius would think of it. Even um, at that, though, Diomedes feels like someone that probably doesn't. Probably doesn't indulge often. Mm. It would be reserved for a special occasion. Yeah. And especially not while working. Which. Yeah. Actively on the job. So. Yeah, as we take a sip of our wine, <laughs> working quote. <laughs> um, we then come to the bulk of this chapter, which is a conversation with Cassius aboard the Archie, the ship that we've grown so fond of over the course of these chapters. It's it is like a fifth character, fifth main character in this book, which is so cool. Not even something that you like really fully consider, but the fact that it is like the core of the story, the ship that we're in, is just excellent. But. Did you want to say anything on the Archie? I hate it. Fuck you. Fuck the Archie. We learn <laughs> that the Ascomani are mostly packing up and leaving back to their belt. We find that Fa's head has been put into a box as well and is referred to as Dominus Stinkhorn right next to uh, Dominus Portobello from earlier uh, with the little face painted on it and everything like that. Mm -hmm. They discuss their honeymoon, as it were, that they've kind of been on over the course of the this sort of journey together. Dara then mentions that Volga will need a Razor Master to be a leader, and Cassius is the only logical option, shattering his heart and expectations for his place in sort of the larger society. So Republic, first things first, rather. I love that Dominus Stinkhorn gets little fangs. In his little drawing. Blah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> blah, blah. Yeah. Monster. As far as Volga getting training from Cassius goes, I'm excited to see him teach, of course. We've seen a little bit. We've seen Darrow get teaching from Cassius. We saw Cassius and Lysander training. But since... Uh, I, I understood this as Darrow kind of saying that they'll just put the Archimedes inside of Volga's ship for the travel home. Mm -hmm. That means he'll be around two, which means we could have Darrow as a sparring partner under Cassius's tutelage. And she is going to have some fucking unprecedented prestige in her training. And it's not, not like Diomedes isn't going to be around to oh, be like sure. a final boss Maybe. just for fun. If he, you know? if like he comes, a, if he doesn't stay in the rim. Yeah. Oh, fair, fair. I'm not sure about that. He does that. mention being like the hegemon later and like being able to take the, the Shadow Armada. So I would imagine he would come along, but you're right. He would still probably be separated as far as forces go. Mm -hmm. And likely would have a tough time rallying the rim around being cool with the Volks suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> and Darrow. Yeah, right, right. Well, yeah. I, I think I, there's there's something to be argued there, of course, but there we'll, is. we'll figure that out but as that, we go it's, along. It's, yeah. a, it's a tough sell. It's, it's the point of contention right at the end of the week, so. But so cool. I'm, I'm excited for Volga to that point with Cassius. It's, a, it's definitely an enticing mm -hmm. tidbit. Cassius then says something that moves Darrow to tears. He says, I really appreciate you as a person. We've had our spots. We really have. We brought out a lot of bad in each other, but a lot more good. I think it's like that because we speak a common language. You know, we've always understood each other deep down. 
and he continues to break down their connection. This starts with a mention of like Julian and Darrow feels this sort of like deep sinking sensation as he's feeling this brother being brought up again. And we Darrow responds in kind, calling Cassius his brother on not only this like immediate journey, but in life in general, and that he won't make the mistake of letting him go again. And it's such this moment in the coffee shop was one that moved me to tears. Oh, because <laughs> it was like it was so good. That's so it, good. It is, it's a very touching moment. It had just started to rain at this point. Oh, no. <laughs> when I was in the coffee shop, like right around here. Oh, man. This did very much cement the the name for this part being a perfect name. Naming this part brothers feels so, so good after this conversation. And, you know, not to like be really poignant about it, but I've been pretty oblique about mentioning every time that brothers have been brought up, brought up as, you know, you didn't know the name of this part, but, you know, making sure because mm -hmm. Pierce does a very good job of planting the seeds of the way that everyone's grown together and kind of coming to this realization by and large that like Cassius by everything but name is also like the original third howler, right? Like yeah. all the way back with the Minerva flag. Right. So. <laughs> yeah that fucking scene and, and june the cook <laughs> most important part of the story of course number one food we then confirm a little detail of course as they, they sort of have this kind of like nice joshing back and forth per typical about sort of the style that darrow found during the duel with fa and darrow formally names it the breath of stone which is so good. Of course, we kind of assumed this based on everything else, but putting it and saying it out loud. Yeah, we talked about this last week, and I didn't realize that this hadn't been confirmed as the name. Darrow said it to himself internally a number of times, and I think the chapter was even titled Breath of Stone. Yeah. So I just, I, I, I don't know. I couldn't remember if it was actually explicitly stated, but I just kind of rolled with it because our notes also confirmed it for me. So, <laughs> well, it it felt like it was something. This is just it him externalizing it more or less. Like yeah. this was him and Cassius. He's like, that's a great name. He's like, don't don't make fun of me for what I'm going to call it. No. Yeah. So, I'm excited to see if it happens. If if they make it back to Mars for Cassius to come down into the mines with him. Feel the feel the breath of stone. Yeah. Return to their home, you know, because they're both Martians. Mm -hmm. That's like a thing. A thing that we don't think about too often is that they also have like a shared world, right? That they've came from and a shared yeah. central point that they're fighting for, too. And all I, three I, of them. I keep thinking about the conversation that we had around this with Lyria as well, that. She doesn't consider Mar Mars to be her home. She considers the mines a separate place that's her home. And that that sentiment doesn't ring true for Darrow. Yeah. And her her home no longer exists was kind of the point. So now right. like Mars is her only home. Her family is her only, only home. So mm -hmm. Volga is home. Volga is home. So ending the chapter, Darrow sees a jump scare in the form of his old flagship now adorned with black loon crescents flying very narrowly underneath them. And the Lightbringer, after its slow three-week trek behind everyone else, has arrived. I was confused by this part a little bit, and I'm wondering if you have any insight on it. The, the reason why they cut the power, is it is mm -hmm. it like 
they have enough digital overlays and there's like shielding that they weren't able to see it except for like actual human like eyeball optics and they had to turn off the the power in order no, to No, I think get that. that they were afraid that they were going to be saw. Ah, okay. Because of proximity the other way, right? So like they're in my head and listener at home, Crossland has his hands placed over top of each other. They're basically going like this, right? And they only come to realize it because they weren't able to see the burn as they were slingshotting around the moon. Um, okay. or detected on their sensors, but once they catch like the subtle ghost, I think is how they describe it. They immediately shut everything off and then just sit idle in the air. Okay. As this sort of parade of torch ships goes underneath them, which is such a cool visual image. <laughs> yeah. It'd be like shutting off your engines and star destroyers going underneath you and just being like, please don't notice. Please don't notice. Please don't notice. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's intimidating to say the least. Like understanding the size of the light bringer. Yeah. Eight fucking kilometers. Eight kilometers of heavy metal. Fucking Lightbringer Morningstar. Yeah. And it's here. With that, we then get into chapter 79, Lysander, Teeth of Civilization. We then return to, well, I don't want to call him our boy, but the lad Lysander's perspective <laughs> for the first time in a long time, helming the new shepherds with Cicero. Lysander's angling for this to be the shining example of what he brings to the table as a leader for years to come. But some of it is playing out differently than Atlas had anticipated, of course, because of Faw's downfall, of which Lysander is as of yet unaware. He comes across as such a smug bitch this entire chapter. <laughs> so he's so <laughs> smug. He's so angry that he has to play this part, but at the same time, he's so happy to do so. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he's so it is loathsome. <clears throat> smug bitch is great. Smug bitch. Fucking uh, I'm I'm immediately drawn back to our days in Iron Gold. The wonderful days of talking about salads and hot dogs or sorry <laughs> salads and corn dogs on beaches and lysander being in frame even and i just want to stamp smug bitch right on his face <laughs> inside of that <laughs> inside of that photo in my mind <laughs> no mm-hmm. so yeah oh god what a what a dude <sighs> so as gold death reigns upon the surface of Io that the society begins to reclaim from the Oscomani, they begin to notice that not mu- that much is not as it seems. And despite their best attempts to fight it back, they simply do not have the resources to fight back here and now. Phoenixa, of whom we're introduced to. Phoenixa, I think. Phoenixa? Phoenixa. Phoenixa, I think. Out that salvation has arrived, and his name is Lysander. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry so many odd uh from puking noises this week i know i know <laughs> the only thing worse than the in perspective descriptions of these scenes is the, the descriptions of the propaganda reel in the next section like that's the only thing that's worse than this <laughs> yeah yeah i mean very very good point because it just you it oozes as you had mentioned, this sort of smugness and this and what, it's the what point. sucks is like, like it's intentional. Yeah, it it is an intentionally aimed political campaign and like this is intentional propaganda that is created specifically to hail the man 
as like the second coming, basically. And what's so both like frustrating on one hand and intoxicating on the other hand is that Cicero buys into it, man. And I like Cicero. <laughs> like I, I think Cicero is a good he he has sort of the the tactus rogue energy of like could be a good guy in the right circumstances, but he's just in the wrong ones. He yeah. has Cassius energy all over him. Like, but think about it from his perspective of what's going on. He doesn't understand that this is an entirely fabricated oh, campaign. No, no, like, no. That's that's why Sander like is from his perspective saving everybody. <laughs> right, right. Which is why it is so like it's so frustrating to like watch this man fall for the lie as well. Yeah, it's it's a lot. We then move forward to the reveal that Gaia is alive and has been found living among those buried, which, you know, like Lysander has to feign shock just like we do in this moment, (laughs) which is just so unbelievable in so many ways. There's a shocking moment that follows that with Demetrius and Drusilla being insolent and they obediently pop their knives out of their boots when they're commanded to by Roan and place them on their tongues. It's a shocking scene of sorts that remind us reminds us of sort of the like obedience level and degree of grace. Like this is something else. Yeah. Boot knives. Yeah. <laughs> also boot knives. But regarding Gaia here. She knows now too, right? Like she she interacted with Fa and Lysander and Atlas. Nope. Oh, it was just video feed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. For some reason, yep. I thought I thought there was direct interaction. No, she has no idea. It's just Atlas saying, you know, or Fa. I can't remember which of the two of them, but like, what monster kills their mother? <laughs> yeah, that was Fa. Yeah. Yep. But as far as the Praetorians go and Roan. I suspect that this is just kind of how they normally operate or should operate with this strict code. But I am curious if this is a little bit of Roan trying to regain some some good standing in Lysander's eyes after after his transgressions and lies have been <laughs> exposed a little bit. Definitely a question that's brought up, and I think I think you're pretty on the nose there with like Lysander definitely asks that question because he specifically it's like just one line, but he says, you know, Roan is respectful and follows a code, but I question what code that really is. Mm-hmm. And so there's just this sort of like he is still uncomfy with Roan. And this, to your point, I think also gives that like, is he just doing this for show or what? what really is it? How much of this is mathematical and like planned how much of this is atlas how much of it is politics Mm -hmm. yeah yeah is the puppet seeing his strings yes i think i think very (laughs) clearly yes of course he is well yeah i i'm just saying like but in this particular instance are like yes are is roan actually like a set of strings like is that is that a thing obviously he sees the other strings but like there's this it's like he's seeing three of four, but he knows that there's a fourth one tucked up his ass somewhere. He just doesn't know from where it spawns on right. the other end, I guess. He feels the tugging. You, you lost that know. one. You, you started running with the metaphor and then you lost it. 
<laughs> he feels the tugging of the string gently, <laughs> and he's wondering which direction it's actually pulling from or something. I don't know. I don't know. Something like that. But we then get to the Moon Lords, and this is a rough sight to see that this leadership truly humbled by this obsidian invasion. The execution is brutal, and Gaia is kind of, like, fractured, I would say. Like, her personality feels broken compared to like what we've known her to be and she's you know she's been a couple of things yeah but over the what we've known of, her to be was always a sham anyway kind of she went in her interactions with lysander she wasn't so short right she kind of seemed like an old crone like a witch you yeah know, she kind of had like witchy vibes i think is how we described her <laughs> like an old witch and she feels we we kind of know that to be a sham and like that was kind of a presentation, but this feels like shattered. Like this is a real version of a person of whom has seen death, stared it down and basically surrendered mm-hmm. and is now kind of like trying to piece it back together. Um, it, she's just a markedly different woman and her final words about the fate of Fa uh, and what to be done with him. You know, Lysander says he'll bring the head back on a pike and she says no pike slow and with fire like should have told us that before we hired all those carvers to make the, the exact replica the of the faucet <laughs> <laughs> guys we need a full fucking body well can somebody I mean, make sigurd stretch him out and make him look bigger yeah and then torch him because <laughs> yeah who cares what he looks like anyway right yeah burned ashes yeah fuck not that it matters because Faz did. Yeah, rip. But I, I do. And I am curious. I'm curious. Will he still go through with the presenting of a fake Fa body anyway? Yeah, complete the story regardless. Mm-hmm. It's got to look question. fresh. Yeah, and it probably does look pretty fresh. It's pretty there. All right. With that, we get to chapter 80. Darrow stirring stuff. This chapter is a racehorse covering a lot of ground the moment the gun goes off. We start with the propaganda and Darrow calls the whole thing stirring stuff immediately as he listens to Lysander's licentious speech and replies, that motherfucker's going to burn, earning him the shock of his two shipmates, Diomedes and Cassius. <laughs> this feels like the Reaper's back. <laughs> like we, <laughs> Truly, we haven't had true angry dialogue from darrow all book and this this feels even in tim gerard reynolds like inflection of his voice when he's when he's speaking these lines it feels very much like uh darrow at war the reaper yeah, and the only other like taste I would say of the Reaper that we've gotten in this whole novel is in the Athena prison cell, right? Like that is really That's the true. only time that Good he's point. really ever came up. Well, I, I'm not, I'm not dissuading you. This is like mm-hmm. the first time that it feels real because he talks himself out of that. But this is this is something that I think burns to his core, and it's interesting even to have like Gaia and Darrow both say that someone needs to burn for their transgressions back to back. You know, yeah. like that's also a powerful statement. That regardless of your side of the war, somebody's got to burn for what they've done. Right. Burn them. Burn them. Here's the question. If you were to prepare Lysander with a fire, and I say prepare to take whatever you might intend 
how best would you cook the man? Medium rare? <laughs> I didn't mean for surfing. <laughs> I mean, like, okay, so if, like if we're talking about long and torturous burning, like what would you do? <laughs> Iron Wolf. <laughs> oh, okay. That's brutal. Fucking, <laughs> fucking tough. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> that's that one's that's that's tough that's mm-hmm. hard yep hmm. stirring stuff <laughs> Dara takes a lot of swaying over the course of this chapter to settle and comes to grips with Lysander and what must be done in order to unwind the web that Atlas has built the Volk are to stay on Europa so that they aren't shot out of the sky by the Lightbringer meanwhile they're going to take the Archie and sneak down and explain to Gaia Lysander's theater that's being puppeted by Atlas I, I thought the back and forth between Darrow, Cassius, and Diomedes was really, really well constructed. It, the arguments made allowed Darrow to make concessions without being convinced of Lysander's personal qualities. It just it, it was logical and strictly tactical, and exactly how Darrow needed to be convinced in this moment in order to kind of step down a little bit. It it was very, very, very well done. Yeah. I particularly appreciate the way that this feels, you know, hearkening back again, there's this like brotherhood between the three of them at this point through all kinds of oaths and vows and unspoken or spoken. And this does feel kind of like Diomedes coming into his own as far as an argument goes. And Cassius by and large backing him as like a voice of, I don't want to say fully like voice of reason because I don't think Darrow's being unreasonable, but asking for a chance for Lysander because both of them can account for times in which he has actively, they can judge, they've judged his character to be true or good in some capacity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean, we've seen Lysander be a piece of shit as has Darrow, which comes up later, but you know, Exactly. It's yeah, which is why taking the unemotional approach in talking him down is a smart one. Yeah, it's it's an effective one. I also want to bring up how Diomedes inside of this little segment, even with there potentially being an out here for him in this situation, he really doubles down that his vows mean something and that he's not going to turn his back on the daughters or the Volk here to Darrow. That he isn't so willy-nilly with them. For whatever reason, um, this this really stuck with me. And I I can't tell if... I'm of two minds for, for the quote, I am not stingy with my oaths hmm. that Diomedes makes. Um, one hand, it feels like almost a mistake or like counter to what he's trying to argue. Like, I'm not stingy with my oath, so who cares if one of them slips by would be my read on that quote, given no context. Right. But I'm wondering if it's more like I've made a lot of oaths and I only have so many paths forward in order to maintain all of them. That's interesting. I don't take it to mean that he's like made too many oaths, but at the same time. Because not stingy would be like numerous with them. Yeah. Right, right, right. He has he has many oaths that he has to uphold, and so there's like conflict between them. But he sees a path. It's a narrow one, but he sees a path. Mm-hmm. 
That's actually interesting. I hadn't considered that fully. Even when I like read your like back notation for the record, I feel like every time that we mention the notes, it were like scripted. We are not scripted. We just have we like ideas have that we start keep, with. We don't have to keep bashing. I know. <laughs> no, but every once in a while, I just feel like it's pretty clear that we, but we like use notes. No, I mean like of course because otherwise, what the how the hell are we gonna like hold? I mean, you listen to like the early Red Rising podcast where like we didn't necessarily have you keeping notes. And we get a little sloppy at the end of those. <laughs> We're also <laughs> drinking a lot more for a lot of those. I mean, true, but also I had a hard time leading you to water. It's <laughs> true. In those moments. But yeah, so I I hadn't really thought about it that way. To me, it feels more like a, a small thing that if I were an editor, I would have probably had this like sentence rephrased unless it is intended to be one that says that he holds many oaths and has to kind of drive between them. But I don't feel like he's saying that he just gives out oaths to anyone. You know what I mean? Like, that's my, like, qualm. No, so I agree I, with I, you. I, I think I now yeah. two minds of it. Two yeah. minds with it. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I don't I, I don't see think it working multiple ways. He doesn't make oaths um, without consideration or heavy consideration. Yeah. But he does have a bunch of oaths. And he's very, he has a lot of convictions about like keeping them. What he believes. Yeah. Yeah. Upon, upon further review, that's my working theory is that that is meant to mean that he's constrained by his numerous oaths and only has so many different ways he can go about his life from here forward. Hmm. I feel like the context lends itself to mean specifically that he's not going to abandon. And the way that I'm thinking about it, too, is like he's not going to abandon the daughters or the Volk. He believes that like that is. But it reads like you're saying, it reads both ways. But I think predominantly what mm -hmm. that phrase is just trying to make sure that it imparts, regardless of the other side of the context, is the daughters and the Volk are their interests are my interests now because of the promise that I've made. Bringing in future regardless context of which from from bridge. additional chapters. I think he's also at least thinking about his oath as a as an Olympic knight. Yeah, he's definitely considering it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, especially in 81, 82, wherever we're going next. 81, one I of think. Them. I think so. I think so. So our chapter ends with a call and an answer, which I think is always a fun way and reminds me this in particular feels very Star Wars. It feels very... Um, Han Solo Luke kind of to me and the call answer is what is the one thing Lysander is afraid of losing that Darrow asks and Cassius quickly retorts his reputation and this could be a very good easy like rhetorical or not rhetorical yeah rhetorical question from Darrow ah, rhetorical is wrong but can't like a question that he knows the answer to and he knows that Cassius knows the answer to. Like a leading question. That's a rhetorical question. That's yeah, rhetorical. okay. okay. Yeah. I don't think that's the case here, though, because he starts like genuinely digging into like, is it a person? Is it something? And Cassius cuts him off and says his reputation. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what I like about this scene is that it takes the spotlight off of Darrow solely as the tactician and allows this responsibility to be shared among the Deromediaceous triumvirate that we've created. <laughs> Our Deromediaceous brotherhood. Yeah. yeah. I, I like that we get to, we, we get um, 
an immediate decision being made and executed by Cassius when he takes off after answering this question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And he does. It it feels like, again, to reiterate, I love, I love that that context because it does pull it off of him and gives other characters onus inside of these scenes, which is one of the things that we, I don't think we've talked about a whole lot, but character agency is something that Pierce is so incredibly efficient at giving up and dividing outside of POVs that it's, it's miraculous. His characters are, never just serving advancing the plot i can't think of a single character at any individual moment that wasn't that didn't feel like they had interests and this is a great showing of cassius's interests you know i, what was I mean make i was just trying to peel back to my mind. you um, but... <laughs> <laughs> i mean okay baby <laughs> but she had interest you know? but, yeah they were self-interested perhaps she got off well, death is bad, but like she got off easy. <laughs> <laughs> compared to some of some fates compared to the story, she compared did to get some off fates, easy. Yeah. yeah. I can't help but think of Trig, you know, comparatively, right? Yeah. As like a martyr comparison or F. Fuck. I mean. Yeah. I said F, which is my character in our D and D campaign. But I know also it threw from, me for a second. You know, yeah. <laughs> there, there is a reason that I did. I did kind of lean into that name because I like Ephraim so much. But it will not become my character's name. Mm-hmm. I think it's. I think my character is just F forever. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to break that. So I think I've given up on trying to rename it. Anyway, <laughs> it just is. It is now. Okay. Cool. With that, we get into our penultimate chapter of the week, but holy shit, do we have a lot to say about that. But generally speaking, our notes document is X, X pages long. This is half of the week's notes is spread over two chapters that are so long. Well, it's um, two of the five. Like, it's almost half of the chapters. so much. Yeah, but there's also so much here to talk about. You'd expect, you know, a more even division among chapters, but this is this is a lot. Did I say did I say two pages? I mean, it's like two thirds of the notes for two chapters. It's a little bit more than half. It's a lot regardless. Mm -hmm. Most of it, 82. But getting into chapter 81, Lysander parting of the shadow. I really like that we start with a sort of petulant Lysander here, sick and tired of playing Atlas's role of shining protagonist already. Like he is we using the puppet strings analogy this whole time, the one up the butt. But. He is very much feeling that that distant string tugging and doesn't doesn't love it. And he's standing and listening to all these confessions as they're referred to to us for the first time as the parting of shadow. Several are notable, of course, and I really appreciate sort of the way that this is this outpouring of fears from everyone in the rim. It feels very ritualistic in a unique way. And several are notable, including Gaia's where she says, I fear that even in victory, we have lost the future. I fear our people already sailing into darkness will never be found nor liberated. I fear that they will endure forever in bondage. And this is fascinating. And I want to spend some time breaking down that quote from Gaia. Um, But what were your thoughts on this whole practice? I love the ceremony. It feels very rim, if that makes sense. Obviously, Mm -hmm. it is. Of course, because we're there and it's there. Like it is, it is a rim thing, but it fits, I guess is my point. Um, yeah. I appreciated 
Lysander's internal grievances, but I would appreciate them a lot more if they were spoken so aloud. Not fucking loud. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously he can't. We could. He, That's the thing. He can't. <laughs> Nobody could. You he know what I mean? Could. Like it wouldn't <clears throat> serve him. It I, wouldn't I wanna, serve anybody. I, like I he don't, would he would be struck down fairly quickly I don't generally I think if he did that. Like running through what if sequences or circumstances right but a a big what if to me here is he is among the leaders of the rim right and he is among these people the moon lords and a lot of others of course it's not just the rim lords but he's among this sort of group of people that are all admitting very real very tangible fears if he admitted that I think Gaia's tune would change pretty dramatically to be like, what the fuck is my son doing? And I, I'd i be hard-pressed to say that she wouldn't rally against him for honor's sake um, publicly. Like, I... Man, it's it's that like it's that liar's dilemma of like admitting admit, admitting the truth feels like it has more weight than like keeping it inside. But often the truth is the path to glory, right? Like that is yeah. That's what's to me so frustrating about Lysander's take ultimately in a lot of this. But I think I think he would be attacked in the moment, but I think the fact that he would be attacked proves him correct. Like he's he's playing a standoff but he doesn't realize the number of cards that he actually is holding in his hands. Yes. I, I Okay, even if he's not attacked here, I think saying this concedes power to Atalantia. I think that's the biggest problem. It, it does, probably, but I think that the rim would be like, well, we don't like her to begin with. And they get know, squashed. Because they were already there. Right, which is Diomedes' point later. So I, I don't, I see this as an actual natural rallying point for Lysander that he isn't acknowledging, and there's the potential for him to acknowledge it yet, though, is the mm-hmm. thing. This was just like the first opportunity for him to turn and admit it, right? Yeah. This is the first time that he like has a chance to break. He gets a second chance later that we will definitely talk about that we don't know the resolution of, of course. But yeah, that he has that opportunity. That said... That opportunity evaporates by the end of this section when Gaia gets to hear the truth, potentially, from someone other than Lysander. Yeah, we don't know that yet. But, we don't know that yet, right. but... We don't know what she knows. So, Right. Right. I do want to peel us back just a little bit from what we were talking about and talk about Gaia's. So... She says, I fear that even in victory, we have lost the future. I fear our people already sailing into darkness will never be found nor liberated. I fear that they will endure forever in bondage. This is obviously it's bleak. Obviously, there are a lot of questions that she has surrounding the fate of the rim. But I think it's also pretty mysterious as to even her feelings or intents. What did you kind of grab or grasp onto from Gaia's parting of shadow i guess she and diomedes feel very much cut from the same cloth um if what she's saying is truly her her fears she's somebody that i admire in in their convictions and in in their uh wants 
I guess, for their for their people. She seems to care, <laughs> which is a breath of fresh air from like we, we, we're dealing with a lot of people that care, but the lot of people that care is still a small majority or a small minority of the rest of Gold society. I think that there's a question of whether or not she cares, right? I don't know that it's so so firmly answered in your context that you're providing. Mm-hmm. I think that she is like it's it's a vagary, which is why I think it's interesting to interrogate. Okay. That's true. Because she says, I fear our people. Is she talking about the gold? Is she talking about the the people of the rim in general? Sailing into darkness, neither found nor liberated, I fear that they will endure forever in bondage. Is she talking about the freedom of all the colors in the hierarchy? Or is she talking about the rim people in general being subjugated by the core? Well, the people so that, there's like this sort that of are sailing large... into darkness right now are the low colors that were imprisoned Mm. that's what i took from it it was all the low colors that Foz forces had imprisoned see and i see it as like her seeing the end result of what has to happen now and her seeing lysander for like the person that he is so they're sailing and that like rim unity is all but spoken for right like it it's a foregone conclusion at this point you didn't take the are people sailing into darkness not not as literal but as as more figurative because I, I was taking it as Correct. literally like yeah. those but, taken but that's by what's the money sailing that's what's into darkness yeah 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 i think that's what makes gaia such a clever character that's and woman and she's a political person we know this about her and so i think she is basically speaking her fear of lysander out loud in front of him to which he can't say his fears out loud, which is just so brazen and Lysander isn't smart enough to interpret it. But I think she is actually outing her fear of him. In this I moment. love that read. And yeah, I, I think so. am upset that I didn't think of it first. It's so crazy. It's so <laughs> layered. Like, And everyone else is very – I think the reason that you're led to believe – the surface thing in the moment is because everyone else's fears up until Gaia feel very surface. They feel immediate. It's like, I fear for the people. I fear for the people that were stolen from the homes. I fear for the dead. I fear for the future, whatever else. And we go through hundreds of these before we get to Lysander's, of course, but like Gaia's just feels so poignant to like, this is the death of our society. Little, little S society, not big S society, but mm-hmm. our dominion. The, the foregone conclusion is that we sail the war. So, and this is the rim book that I wanted, man. And I think like Gaia here in the end, giving us some of the rim business is great. Rimness. Rimness. We're making all these rim jokes. And then also I've got the Lysander string up the ass joke. So we are just all over the butt cheeks today. Our devil's cut hold was a, yeah, our devil's cut thing was about shitting. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> like we are, we are fully fixated. <laughs> <laughs> on two cheeks and a sphincter here's the hard sell if you want to listen to us talk about unconventional shitting unfortunately <laughs> unconventional, <laughs> shit. unconventional unfortunate shitting. craps come come join <laughs> us at patreon.com slash words and whiskey that was that was a fun one yeah in addition to some other things that's not all we talked about but mathar gave us a prompt last minute in the middle of our devil's cup which we needed one so very appreciative, of course, of their input for us. Oh, man. But yeah, I, I love the guy quote. I think that there's a lot to read into there immediately. 
we then move to Lysander's turn, of which we've dissected parts of, but he we've dissected sort of the secrets, right, that he has and his admittance of fears, but his fears that he's admitting are mostly just bravado in this moment, right? This is him putting on the face for the propaganda for the campaign that he's leading. This is his play that he's acting in at the behest of Atlas, which to me, there's also a great theming here with like the one of the first big interactions that we have with atlas being at a play literally inside of this this whole thing so there's a nice little like full circle tilt there as he feels like he is acting in a play balloon has gotten very very good at lying to himself over the course of this novel he says most of all or I think this is internal, actually. Most of all, I fear my own concessions will come back to haunt me, that I will be laid bare before these people as a fraud, which proves Cassius's reading of him pretty fucking correct. I think that this quote specifically and a few other quotes throughout this section that I, I don't remember the exact wording of, but I know I got this feeling several different times, really point to him understanding exactly how much he's lying to himself. Oh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't. He's not buying it. He's not he's not convincing himself that he is this way. And this is saying that he understands the fraud that he's made of himself. And it's not that he's afraid that but people will see him, him as a fraud. It's under he's afraid that people will realize that he's a fraud. Mm -hmm. That that reality will come to light at some point. Yeah, exactly. And he's convinced that this is the only way forward in this game. And uh, mm -hmm. I I think, I believe that he's right in this. Like we, we talked about this right at the beginning. I think you, you mentioned that he's painted himself into a corner and I think that's wrong. I think he's been painted into it externally. I think he's made choices though along the way that like- He hasn't so there necessarily helped himself right. as much that's as he could have. But- yeah. He's he didn't entirely do it to himself. There, yeah. there are a lot of external forces pushing him into this corner. Well, he it's it's kind of like he found himself on a chessboard, right? And he thought himself a knight, and it turns out he was a pawn getting danced around by everyone else, right? Yeah. So and his only chance is to that's the reality to, get, to the get other to the side end of the maybe. board. <laughs> yep, exactly. great analogy. Worked. But he he expresses, I think, within this section as well, being exhausted by the face that he has to put on for this. He doesn't like this, mm -hmm. this propaganda campaign that he's leading. And what's so funny is that he is espousing all of the virtues that he's talked about believing in, right? Like he is espousing all of these things, but he knows with certainty that they're fake, that they're false in the back end. Like the back end of these things are just blatantly incorrect the power game is entirely structured against his sense of honor mm -hmm. um, which we'll talk a little bit more about later but yeah, yeah. so lysander's brava speech is interrupted as chants of storm echo into the room like a thunderclap diomedes is live and lysander isn't smiling this to me is fascinating because lysander is upset that he's a part of the play but now that the play has been disrupted He's not strictly happy about it. He doesn't know how to react. But Diomedes, again, honors his word in a private conversation with him and wants to offer him the shield of Akari. I didn't get the sense that he was unhappy about this. I, I, I think Cicero seemed... literally tells him to smile. Yes. And I think that's mostly because of something that he mentions 
a little bit later in that he's carefully spun this web of lies that has a very real possibility of getting tangled. Yeah, adding, absolutely. Adding this external, this rogue actor. But I think, I think I that's guess. the point is that he's yeah. like not happy about that part of it. Like, he, yeah, he literally says his fear is my concessions will come back to haunt me. That will be laid bare. Here is one of those concessions yeah. is not telling the truth of the death of, you know, Diomedes. That's true. But as far as I could tell from his internal monologue, like from, from his thoughts, he's kind of happy about it. He's, but he's, not he's like, excited about yeah. Diomedes being alive. I think so. It's comp. It does seem complicated. Yeah. Yeah. He's not. I don't think in the long term, this is a bad thing, but it is. It is like someone randomly walking into your play and they don't have any lines and you have to react to them to make it to not like <laughs> dissuade from the show that's going on. Right. right. Like, oh, fuck, I need to make I, this is improv now and I have to stay in character. Yep. Reading lines versus improv. Yeah. Uh, so they then I forget if this is this is just a point of contention within myself that I didn't have time to review fully. Is this taking place in Akari's Arbor? Like, is that where the no. parting of shadow is or is that where they meet later? No, that's where that's where they get brought right now. He's I don't know the scene that they're in, the setting that they're in, but the end of this scene is Diomedes saying that he needs to bring Lysander to this tomb to get Akari's. Yeah. Shield. Okay. So they, you're right. It is a tomb that they go into. The arbor of Akari is where the lamentation happens. Okay. So that is where that, oh no, sorry. That's even before that. That's where they meet up is in the arbor of Akari when Gaia's originally comes back. They do go into that tomb though later. Cause I was like, I thought it was a cave setting, but I thought that they referred to it as arbor for some reason. Sorry, getting locations mixed up in my head. But yeah. What is an arbor? Is that a is that a forest? Arbor is like a tree. Yeah, so it'd be like a f- private garden forest. Another okay. garden, another forest. I've I've never heard that term before in, in relation to setting. I've heard like arborist yeah, I mean, as... Shady Garden, garden Alcove. So it'd be like a little tiny copse of trees, if you will. Okay, like a mini arboretum. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like a small, a smaller space. You know, thinking about like Game of Thrones where the god trees generally are. Okay. That would be like an arbor. Gotcha. Because that's like a small enclosure, generally. Akari's just all over this place, huh? Akari is everywhere. I mean, he is, this is, he's the, he's the boy, right? He's, he has, he <laughs> stole this like... He's okay. If we if we have to take PJ, if we have to choose between Selenius and Akari, we choose Akari a hundred percent of the time, right? Like probably. If we're talking about a fascistic leader and we have to choose one, there's no third option, which is bad. I don't I don't like it. Don't get me yeah. wrong, but we're taking Akari a hundred percent of the time. This is my yeah. argument for why Lid Escalates should have put out an Akari bust and not a Selenius bust. But there you go. So I actually, like, I don't know the difference between them that well. They seem like very comparable people as Just far think, as their ideals. Like their and, and basis of philosophies are different, though. You are know they? what I mean? Like, they're, 
Yeah, entirely. Like the, it's not like the rim spins out of nowhere, and the ideals of the rim spin out of nowhere. It's not like Selenius's ideas ideals spin out of nowhere. Like the lineages are the responsibility of the forebearers in my head, but. It, they're so far removed, though, that they can be perverted and and deviate dramatically. But who do you think deviated further from the intent? I think well, the laws course, are more like the, a ritualistic. The core central. deviated more, but that doesn't mean that the origin was that far off. I just well, in in all honesty, yeah. I don't know the differences in their. This is mostly speculation ideas. that we're kind of heading down, but I I firmly. Given the kind of small doses of Akari that we get over the course of this book and Iron Gold in particular, I'm of the belief that I would go down the Akari path a lot more often. A great example is even his taking and hiding of the Idemy, yeah. even though it is this deadly weapon specifically to protect his own people against poor intent because of those differences. I think that that's like a no brainer for why he stands higher than Selenius does, because I think in the meta text of everything, I think Selenius would, wouldn't stop at anything to do what he needs to. Which is the Loon way. That's Octavia. That's Lysander as far as we're seeing. It's it's the whole thing. Versus there's at least something quasi-honorable about Akari. Which is also why I, I love you. I love you, Lit Escalates, so much. And I love the work and how good the bust of Selenius looks. But man... I can't buy a bust of a fictional fascist dictator and put it anywhere near anything that I want to own. Not that it not that like, you know, like a bust of Lysander wouldn't be cool. I would consider it, especially if it had like spray paint on it, you know, and it was like marked up in a fun way. But, mm-hmm. you know, there there are components there. But Selenius in particular, Nero, Akari, like there I would take other people before I'd take Selenius personally. That's fair. Did you see that, by the way? The I whole did. Thing? I got I okay. got the email. Pretty of it. cool. It was yeah. pretty cool. It looks really it looks awesome. I, I really like it. Like it looks really cool. I just feel really weird about Selenius in particular. I don't know. Yeah. I felt like in a, a weird emotional resonance of like it, the the whole conquering bit is uh, a little Yeah. Little, it's a little, little problematic. Bad. <laughs> Akari Akari is also complicit yeah, and did the same explicitly thing. involved. Yeah. Right. So, like, not good, but, again, if I had to choose. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. So, anyway, they they arrive at sort of this arbor, right? Uh, Not this arbor, but this tomb where where he's going to be giving the shield and honoring that oath that he promised to Lysander. Only golds are allowed inside. Of course, we kind of know that that's a ploy, I think, in the end by Dionysus, which shows that he is capable of lying, which even, is interesting. Even the Praetorians seem cagey about that, too. Like, they, they feel like something's off. Yeah, I can't help but also think that they they maybe think that, like, they maybe aren't willing to separate their strings in the moment. Like, they, they know that they're strings and they have to be attached because what if Lysander does something? Which is another layer on That's top of the cake. Totally another layer, yeah. Yeah. I'm just full of weird metaphors tonight. I, layer <laughs> cake? What, what, the f- <laughs> what the fuck? What's going on? Blame the wine. There's no Don't. egg. There's no egg this episode. <laughs> no egg. No egg. The number of comments that we got back on that episode, by the way, everyone loved it. They were like, more egg talk, please. <laughs> it's like, what? 
but yeah so Lysander does see this though as a trap in the moment but Diomedes absolutely isn't springing that kind of a trap on him he just wants to build a bridge as best as he can against a common enemy but he believes that he understands Lysander's decision that he's made so far there's there's a lot of sort of trading of information here that happens between the two Lysander is afraid that he's going to be called a fraud Diomedes is very careful not to call him a fraud but basically affirm the fact that he's been very clever in the way that he's played the game up until this point but he kind of gives him an out saying that he doesn't need to and in addition in reaffirming that he says honor does not mean i am absent discretion which is primo that's a great line (laughs) it's a very good line i do also like that this trap slash not a trap is straight out of darrow's playbook as well it's like his proximity it's just like well but it's it's brokering a deal between adversaries that do not want to meet in the first place exactly like what darrow was trying to do with diomedes and the daughters or diomedes and the daughters apollonius and himself to some degree (laughs) right yeah like but specifically like this is what darrow did to diomedes and now diomedes is doing it back to darrow diomedes is probably a little bit of a literal learner so you're probably right that is (laughs) he's, he's a little diomedes big himbo energy you know what i mean like he's 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 a smart guy clearly in the way that he navigates this but you know i wouldn't call him the most original thinker out there yeah but what he regurgitates he regurgitates well yeah perfects perhaps we'll see we'll see he's playing he's playing a hard hand doing his best with a hard hand yep but then of course we get the reveal and i think you had either texted me or called me at this point like what the fuck <laughs> is this happening? Like, where are we at? Where are we at right now? As we approach the shield of Akari, another man is sitting there next to it in this tomb. And it is Darrow of Lycos and these two foes meet again face to face for the first time since the Reaper died. Mm-hmm. So there, there is, I don't know how to feel about the last line of this chapter in that he says, like, the man standing there is Darrow of Lycos. And it like it feels presented like this really, really big reveal, but it's not technically dramatic irony because we don't actually know what's going on. But I are we supposed to assume that that nostalgic smell of the wolf pelt and the sort of associated memory of Severo in his bedroom window at the Palatine is pointing to like Severo being the one? in the chamber right before the Darrow reveal or like it felt, it felt very like bum, bum, bum energy when it didn't like actually strike me as uh, a reveal at all. I don't know. I don't, maybe it's just me. Maybe, but the, for whatever the sense reason, thing it felt does weird. evoke Severo. And I think it's intentionally trying to do so because this is, this is the first time that like a serious interaction has happened between them outside of that combat between the two since that period. And so smelling the wolf scent and those familiar aromas, I mean, it's meant to harken back to understanding that he's walking into a trap, maybe not that he's specifically like, is it Severo is a Darrow? But I think for Lysander, he feels that tension rise in him. He feels his heart thunder because, you know, his his heart's thundering because his pants are about to get a little wet because the reaper's coming for his neck or whatever the the to little collect a little rhymey. debt. Yeah, collect a little debt. 
And so, like, literally, he it, it is the result of that fear weighing down on him. And I think it's kind of fun from a meta perspective for Pierce to lean in on that. He does that a couple of times this week, mm-hmm. I think. But this was kind of the first one to me that sings true of the the fear of the Reaper. That's fair. Yeah. Mm. I do... Calling him Darrow of Lycos. I don't know how to feel about that. Is demeaning. Is it's it? It's intentionally... It's, it, That's it is what like he calls himself too, though, isn't demeaning. it? Yeah. Yeah great question that's actually tough that's actually tough i yeah i i guess i'm i'm less resolved on that than i than i thought i was now that you you brought that up originally i thought that it had sort of like malintent behind it but i don't know if it does it might be acknowledging who he is which is unique and feeds into sort of the in my head the honorable half of lysander that like exists quote that we'll talk about in a bit yeah, um, I, I think if he was meaning to be demeaning, he would have called him by the like code that he had assigned at birth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, Darrow O. Lycos would be more directly um, racist. Racist. Yeah, but I mean, there there was like the oh the number physically the number, that he was assigned. Number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he wouldn't. I don't he know would. that Lysander <laughs> would know that. He yes, might. he would. He might. Of course he would. Mm. But he was separated from that information uh, at that's a certain true. point. That, yeah. yeah. Anyway, regardless, I, I think that if, he was, if it was fully malintent, it would probably be Darrow Lycos. If it were false societal go, gold bravado, it would be Darrow Ao Augustus or whatever his name, Andromedus, you know, and would like acknowledge him with sort of the false pretense, right? Of mm-hmm. like the fraud that he is. But Darrow of Lycos, I think, is actually seeing him where he is in a more honest way than I had thought before, hmm. which is also it's still not going to make him not piss himself. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Chapter 82, Darrow, Civil Discourse. We then immediately open in Darrow's perspective with Diomedes has betrayed me as the very first line of the chapter and Darrow evaluating the weight of war on the Palatine pretty boy. And this slayer of Alexander. Uh, lots and lots and lots of tension. From a scene with no actual violence. <laughs> but it feels like it's on the verge of it's violence. So close. It, it is on the time. Yeah. The precipice. Teetering on the edge of violence. Um, mm. I like that we get to see both perspectives in this meeting space. And I like that we get to really feel how much of a hair trigger everybody's on yeah right well done this is one of the most tense exchanges i've read in literature period this is like darrow feels like a loaded gun with a hammer pulled back like this is so (laughs) wow i can't believe he didn't kill him and i mean he puts his sword away before lysander does right which is (laughs) that context that's so fun here to talk about Immediately, Diomedes has to explain himself and his thoughts here. He wants this to be a civil meeting of the minds. And right off the bat, Lysander fucking lies. <laughs> yeah, we know it to be a lie. Darrow infers that it's a lie. And it's just this sort of like dose of dramatic irony for us. There, There's like truth in the lie, to be fair, to Lysander. Yeah, he doesn't a little actually bit. know exactly where Atlas is. Right. But he does know that he's alive and that he's out there. Right. Mm-hmm. And he does kind of vaguely know what he's doing and he could communicate that and he's choosing not to. 
Um, Darrow naturally questions it like he should internally. Dionides believes that there is a middle ground here that can be achieved between the pair because the bigger threat is out there, even if they were all to unite. The threat of Avalanchia is so great that they're all just like little dogs nipping at her heels. I think the ironic thing, and maybe it's intentional on Diomedes' part, but despite everything, this is exactly the opportunity that Lysander needs to get out of this mm-hmm. stalemate that he's found himself in, this this sort of corner that he's been painted into that we've talked about from Atlas. I assume he'll this pretty opportunity to break free. Yeah. I, I think with some reflection after this meeting, he'll come to that conclusion as well. But of course he fucking lies. Like, of course he, he is. He's cagey about being open. Would you, like if your literal sworn mortal enemy <laughs> is suddenly standing in front of you, I don't, I, I don't think any reasonable person would be super forthcoming with information. I'm trying to think of someone that I would be that mad at confronting. And my only answer is Ronnie Radke. <laughs> and I think that, to your point, I feel like I'd still, I, I feel like I'd take the side of Darrow being like the honest asshole because I knew, I know that he would be the cagey bastard. You know what I mean? Like, that's the side of the fight. And, and that's very protagonist of me. But it does, I don't know. Yeah, I guess. I guess. I, I do under I do understand. I can I can empathize while I don't think that I would ever be put in the same situation. Yeah. And Ronnie Radke, yeah. I, I know you are listening. Don't go to patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey because we will refund your patron your dollars. <laughs> we do not yeah. want you <laughs> associated with us. There Fuck are a few people that we would say no to, and Ronnie Radke is fucking one of them. <laughs> I don't know how you would fit our cross-section of listeners, though. So if you're somehow here, appreciate you being one of the many listeners, but fuck you for everything that you've done to the scene and to people in general. Yep. Cheers. <laughs> I'll drink to that. Mm-hmm. Same. Fucking, I can't believe I brought up running Radke. This is such a fascinating <laughs> chapter to me because it is one of the few times. <laughs> Damn it. I feel I feel good about it. Like I have no qualms with what I said. But no, oh, yeah, no, of course not. I'm saying qualms a lot. <laughs> I'm realizing, but it's just such a good word. It is a good word. This truly, though, is such a lovely chapter um, because it's one of the few times that our POV characters have interacted directly with each other in a way that we can understand both of their intents against each other. I think one of the other few times that we can call this out is definitely. In the case of like Ephraim and Lyria, that we can kind of see some of those different moments. Mm-hmm. And then also just in this same book, Lysander and Virginia. I think yeah. that even all of like Darrow and Lysander's interactions aren't direct enough necessarily to feel the same. But this you kind of get the dueling senses of what they stand for from their different perspectives. And that is so fun and tasty. Yeah. The the only other thing that I can think of is the light resistance chapter from the last mm-hmm. book but that's not the same it's a it's a yeah asymmetric asymmetrical uh interaction darrow doesn't yeah, even it's realize like, it, that it's lysander right and on top of that like it's it's not like they're 
there's no like thoughts exchanged between the two, which is also fun. That's what makes that chapter fun is like, this is nothing to Darrow and it's everything to Lysander. So, mm-hmm. you know, not to, not to downplay the importance of that, but it is a, it's different to your point. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just, it's so fun and like a tasty morsel to, to bite in on. Diomedes eloquently wields their positions to try to really form this parlay, even if it does just feel like a temporary place of common ground. It's excellent to see the Storm Knight play his card so well and show that he has always had this political side to him, but that situations before weren't worthy, I think, of his attention because they were considered honorable causes that he'd even contemplate. They weren't these honorable causes that he'd even contemplate. Versus standing between these two, three, if you consider like Cassius's place in the equation, different titans of honor in his estimation. Okay, so I'm a little confused in... in, Are you saying that from Diomedes' perspective, Lysander is a titan of honor? Yeah, I think so. I think he believes him to be a truly honorable man, especially in the Mm -hmm. way that he kind of gives Cassius the sort of, I knew him to only ever be an honorable man, pat on the back when he was thought dead after the battle. I, I think that he does think of him as a titan of honor. Do I? No. I think that he is a a lying sack of potatoes. So let, let's dissect that a little bit, though. An uncomfortable let, let, shit held in your pants. I think I could argue, not mm-hmm. from a personal, per, personal perspective, but I, I think I could argue that Lysander is a champion of honor for the gold society. Oh, for sure. Yeah, not necessarily for his personal honor. He has to kind of feign that in order to be taken seriously amongst other honorable, actually honorable people. But I think his intentions and despicable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. But I, I think what he his end goals are fairly honorable as far as that begs- what what he's trying to usher in. You're not wrong, but I, I want you to try to apply the same rubric to Atlas and like try to oh, grapple I agree. with that, right? I, I, I think the same applies. Yes, it's the... But it I, doesn't I make him less of a despicable person, but... Honorable, what, right. But what he's, what he's striving for... What, he's, what, what Atlas is striving for isn't an honorable gold society. He's, he's striving, he's for, striving peace. for peace generally. But that he Lysander yeah. is striving for something that has not been seen since the conquering, which is which is arguably, yeah, right. arguably. But like he's trying to eradicate the corruption within gold, or or that, while that's being his, corrupt that's himself. His yeah, that's that's his modus operandi in yeah. theory. Yeah, but he see like. He seems genuine in that attempt. It doesn't seem like he he's using that as a feint of any sort. Like that that does feel like his genuine goal. That's what he wants to be, right? I I totally understand where you're coming from. That's he's what he making wants personal to be. concessions in order to get to. there. But he, that that but at what destination still seems like his goal. At what point do the concessions outweigh outweigh everything else, right? And so that's why I think, like, also introducing this tool of, I mean, we'll just call it what it is, what it's equivocated to, like, nuclear annihilation. You know, at, at what point is that line really drawn? 
that you can be considered like an honorable person still in your pursuit of some of any agenda, to be honest. There, there comes a point where the nuclear option, there's a reason it's defined as the nuclear option. It's not a good option. You do win, but it's not a good option. So uh, to but, your point, but, that's but also th- why I think I'm calling him a titan of honor. Is yeah. that I do think that he stands for something in his own estimation. <clears throat> Diomedes also thinks he stands for something that maybe they even differ on in their estimations of him, of Lysander himself. But it is, it's a question. It's something that the text begs you to try to interpret. Yeah, it, it's the the extrapolation and growth of the no honor, no time interaction with Alexander. And but he, I, I don't feel like he's changed his tune. You know you what can I mean? Almost see, no. I, I'm not. I'm not saying that yeah. he has. He hasn't. But it almost feels like he's sacrificing himself and his own honor. In order to usher in an age of honor. But will that ever be I don't truly think so. honorable? But that's, that's the question. It, that seems right. like you're, his goal. And he seems totally to correct. understand the concessions that he's making and the sacrifice in his own uh He is willing to be the making. devil, literally, as he's called Lightbringer. He's willing to be the devil to get the result that he wants. Right. And that he believes to be the right result. Yeah which is no different than the actual story of Lucifer, right? Like, yeah, tough, which is also to be fair and to be entirely to the point of what I think Pierce is trying to say here. We have Lightbringer. We have the Morningstar. These are direct comparisons of going to that lowest low to try to bring about the change that you're trying to. It just turns out that one is more morally correct than the other. And so we agree with it more actively, but Fuck, man, if it weren't if we weren't painted immediately into the other side of this and seeing Lysander's perspective exclusively, we could potentially see him as a hero. And I, I in think a very different lens. I think and very, that's what very I think cleverly. We still kind of can because he he's also the alternative to the actual like the actual threat to humanity that is Atalantia. Correct. Yeah. Right. Which is. A, you know, we're using this sort of devil analogy, but she is actually Satan by comparison. Mm-hmm. She is an actual fully fascist dictator. Right. Yeah. So I think I, I have a There's hard a lot time. Of nuance. There's a lot of nuance. Yeah. I, I have a hard yeah. time letting go of that sort of perspective when it comes to yeah. Lysander's and that's, journey. That's why I'm calling him a titan of honor in diomedes's estimation in this moment Mm -hmm. right like i don't i don't need to holistically agree with that but i believe that that's a part of this sort of conversation and why he thinks that he can bring together cassius isn't here necessarily he does hear this which is its own thing that we'll deal with later but he's still in his mind he still thinks about him he's a part of the reason that he believes that lysander could be a good man so you know there's there's pieces there's layers there and I don't think he's fully wrong. He says, I think we can all agree that today I am the most aggrieved party here. I have lost my mother, my father, my sisters, my brothers, my mentor, and my home. This war has cost me all that I love except two people. There is a voice inside that demands revenge. It tells me revenge will fill the holes torn in my heart. But I know that is a lie. Arcos, known to all of us, said it best. Death begets death begets death. 
He continues a bit later after this saying, the purpose of war must not be vengeance. It cannot be to kill your enemies until none are left. That is barbarism. That is how earth and its multitude of nations strangled itself. The purpose of war must be to find the road back to peace. Darrow internally remarks every time that Diomedes brings up Lorne to the point where I begin to wonder if the speech was tailored specifically to Darrow. And I, I think there's probably some truth to that. But at the same time, I forget pretty regularly that Europa was Lorne's home. Like this is where Lorne lived. And it's totally reasonable that Diomedes would be personally very familiar with man and his philosophies would reasonably be known and shared by Diomedes. So I, I, I'm sure Diomedes knows, like he obviously knows Lauren's connection to Darrow, but I, I wonder how much of this is pandering and how much of it is genuine, like personal philosophy being derived from Lauren. I can't help but also think, in addition to what you're saying, that it's important to note that Lorne's chosen home was the Rim. He's a child of Mars. He was a child of Mars. His whole family was of Mars. He chose the Rim because it most closely aligned with his views. And then I think also the rest unfolds, right? Like he he chose that because he philosophically aligned with them. And mm. then they picked him up as sort of a, you know, Transplant. we've equated him as sort of a philosopher king of sorts and i think that they do view him as the sort of quote he's not really invading he didn't fight anyone but he's like an invading philosopher king and he took over that space for a lot of these folks he yeah. also calling to arcos has echoes with both of them it has echoes with lysander because that is his grandfather that is like a person that fundamentally should be really important to him and That's the ideas point. should resonate with him in addition to darrow being his mentor so like there's there are two reasons that Arcos is this shared lineage between these two uh, op opposing satanic figures <laughs> as far as the text puts them. Yeah. Also, by the way. Diomedes mentions losing his mentor. Do mm -hmm. we know who that is? Helios. Helios. OK. Yeah. To, yeah, yeah. Yep, 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 yep. to Atlas. Yep. Helios. Yeah. Cool. But I it's it's just it's so. This chapter is so well written, and this is one of those examples, right, where it's the constant hearkening to Arcos is specific, and he's echoing out different things at different points. And we'll get to, like, Lysander reckoning with that a little bit when he talks about Alexander, but uh, can't help. Anyway, Darrow internally and then externally admits that he sees a middle path. He almost has the small spark of something unbelievable but admirable in him as he considers lysander's argument for why he was willing to parlay with mustang on phobos and he says the unthinkable that truly there might be a way forward without killing lysander and that peace is truly the prerogative here for the first time we see this glimmer not of a warlord but of a peacemaker yeah i i was Almost as taken aback as Darrow himself was by this mm -hmm. mission. Um, I still want to see that motherfucker burn. Don't disagree. But, <laughs> Not in the but, slightest. Like, that's mostly... That feels mostly like a meme at this point. Like, truly, yeah. truly hating Lysander feels more like a meme than it does 
genuine feeling. Fair. But that said, I would love uh, a special edition. Medium rare Lysander. Well, no, a special edition <laughs> of of Lightbringer, where if you take off the dust jacket in foil on the front cover, that motherfucker's going to burn. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, you talk about quotes. I, I'm getting my copy of the Lightbringer jackets from Late Night Letterer and Nerdy Inc. And, man, that would have been such a good quote that they have on, like, the when you fold them out. You know how they have the quotes? That motherfucker's gonna burn. I would have... I'd give anything for, like, a, a rogue copy of that. I also can't help but... F- Feel an echo of Darrow's own thoughts when Lysander says, Diomedes, for a decade, he has given mankind nothing but war. As an almost closing of a circle, like we've been talking about other components here, or a different perspective on the initial phrase that starts this whole goddamn series, which is, I would have lived in peace, but my enemies brought me war. And Lysander's just like, yeah, but he's like, he's like fighting us. That's bad. It's like, yeah, if you motherfuckers wouldn't have killed my wife, none of this would have happened in addition to all of the other cascading things. Yeah. Like it just it it feels it's so it's so there's catharsis. There's also like ignoramus that I have to acknowledge on Lysander's part for not understanding his facilitation of this conflict. For Diomedes to back up Darrow and Darrow's narrative within this this quote makes that circle even even closer to closing. I appreciated the the question that Diomedes asked of Lysander about what he would do if he was born a red under Mars's surface. He fucking freaks out. Lysander yeah. freaks out. He does. Yeah. And the, fu- the the associated anecdote of his father, of Romulus asking him the same question. I I loved as well and it, it's a leap I know there's no like I don't think there's any other context to it but I, I would believe that this context or that this question was asked after Diomedes learned the truth about Ganymede that's that's my assumption I don't know I would have thought that it would have been asked beforehand because May, Romulus no. seems like the kind of guy like it seems like a lesson for a kid right and yeah, it seems it does, like especially it could have been given, like even before Darrow's I think it entirely is. I think, it, especially given the context of the Sons of Aries comics and our understanding of the Rim, they have a respect for low colors that is unmatched in the core, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's even, I can't remember which book. I want to say it's either Morningstar or Iron Gold, because those are the big Rim books, including this one. But I want to say that there's something to the effect of, like, it's important for other colors to be considered, which is also why we eat the same things that they do. And so, like, it's this whole, like, hierarchical cycle of, yes, they still have the caste system, but there's so much more respect versus the Do you the think core. Lysander would be satisfied with that system? No. The- I, I, and I think that's the problem is his his sort of, like, pulling back reaction in this moment is well reviling but, to me. Yes. Yeah, that's fair. But, I mean, if Lysander were to build the core from the ground up. If he just plucked the rims ideologies and like mm-hmm. adopted them entirely. Do if you he think could that would closely enough match what he's aiming for as a shepherd, like, like the, the shepherd based society. That's Diomedes hope, right? So like 
that is that is the thing that Dionysus is trying to kind of pose. And then in the interim, we get a little bit more like on the way of like, we failed as kings. We've tried to be kings. You know, I'll, I'll get to that quote in a bit here. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, but there, there's still slavery within within the, the rim. It's yeah. still it's still not shepherding. It's still subjugation. You're right. And man, this is such a hard question to answer. I do. I believe the part of Lysander that was raised by Cassius would would head that direction. I think that this Lysander that we have right now is so compromised in value that if you could find a release valve, he could go that direction. But I think it would still be a fucking coin flip, which is the thing that I don't like. You know what I mean? Like, I, I yeah. still I believe enough that Lysander could change, but I don't believe that he would change. And that's one of my issues with the character and not issues. I, but that's why so, like, I, I don't agree with his perspective. I think he it's feels a feature, like not a his ambitions are mm-hmm. pure and grand and conquering. Mm-hmm. But I think his actions are hedging still entirely. I, I, I think yeah. that's I think that's where the biggest problem is. is Power that place. He is trying to still work within the system that he found that he finds himself in instead of these ambitious build it from the ground up sort of proclamations that he's making. He's also literally copying. Like, think about the yeah. new shepherds. He's like, ah, yes, we'll just give you a scar on the other cheek. Like, that's literally copying, my dude. Like, you, <laughs> you are not changing anything outside of declaring that these people are yours. Yeah. And that is not the same as fundamentally changing things like Darrow not giving Alexander a scar and Alexander choosing to drop his, like, owl prefix. Yeah. Right? So we, we talk about Suffix. this a lot at my job. And... It, it's not the same, obviously. Like, I'm not dealing in conquering in my job. But what I am dealing with is new product development within a very, very well-established industry. And a lot of consideration is um, market acceptance of mm-hmm. things. Like, total market disruption is very, very hard to pitch. You have to kind of work within a frame, like, a, with an accepted framework in order to actually get traction in new new products mm-hmm. like you need adoption and that adoption has to be based on something and that something is usually things that they already understand and know to be effective and work so i don't think that's where he's coming from i i, I don't think he's considering that in the same way that we do at work well, I actually, but, I think that I like that analogy because I think that it's important to distinguish. And one of the things that I would say is that there is a good fundamental comparison here then to something like Spotify or to like the iTunes music store or to like these different ideas that can be industry shattering and like rearrange the fabric of of an industry or society, right? And that is Darrow fundamentally in some ways, like he is rearranging the fabric of the way the business is done. It does damage when it does that and you have to repair that. And that's what this whole series is about is him figuring out how to repair that damage. Lysander is really just looking to return to, we'll say plus 10% on the status quo vaguely Mm -hmm. (laughs) versus like 
Diomedes, at the very least, is like, we should be reevaluating this entirely. Can we start from the ground up? I don't know. We don't know that from Diomedes' perspective, but like we believe that he believes in a middle ground at the very least. Yeah. So it's, I mean, tough to parse, but I think that's actually a really good example Mm -hmm. of the sort of like tendency of innovation and the damage that innovation sometimes brings and the consequences that are reaped. Yeah. Both positive and negative. I guess the, the biggest point is the people that Lysander is trying to court mostly are the people that so aggressively disagreed with Darrow. So he has to shift their mind somehow, and he can't. It can't be as dramatic as Darrow's was, mm-hmm. because right. they've already proven that they won't accept that. Yeah, man. Yeah. Fuck. Fuck. There. I'm gonna. I'm gonna push. I, I have thoughts. We're gonna have to talk about him. <laughs> Fair enough. In a bit. So there's a quote here, of course, to to read off from Stoneside again. That's that harkens back to everything that we've been talking about between them. If a man cannot learn from his mistakes, then what is there but to kill us all at first sin, which feeds into a lot of this conversation that we're having, right? Which is like, can you not come back from error? And I think that that's an important thing because it, again, gives Lysander an opportunity to turn mm-hmm. from what's happened before. And also it's important to recognize because – we're fallible. There's there's sort of a in my head, there is a a problem right now into like accepting redemption as a possibility for folks. Yeah. Which I generally think like most folks are redeemable in some facet, unless you pass the threshold. Ronnie Radke has fucking <laughs> crossed the threshold so far in the other direction that there's he's irredeemable, but he's a great example. Like you there is a point in which you become irredeemable mostly. Not that you can't do genuinely good things after being irredeemable, you know, like, I don't know. Yeah, God. But we talked about this a lot inside of Mistborn and. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I love this quote because it affirms that Pierce's ideal is that, yeah, no, everyone can seek redemption versus others ideals <laughs> that, you know, certain acts make you even Mr. if they're Branderson. barely minor. By comparison, make you completely irredeemable with no chance of redemption. Yeah. It's only when you like double, triple, and quadruple down on something do you become, you know, fully. But even then, sometimes you can escape the fate. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to bring up a wrong drag you did. I'm sorry, I'm falling in reverse right out of this. Oh, um, I love it. Oh, I love God. It so much. Oh, God. I yeah. love it so much. That, that wasn't scripted, but it was good. That was good. That was very good. So this quote that Diomedes gives, attributed to Lorne, of course, I love, first of all, that he is so adept at directly addressing one person, but like, he's very obviously addressing both. Correct. In exactly the same way, for exactly the same reasons. It's masterful. This is calling out the Reaper and Lysander at the same time. Exactly. Obviously, Lorne is kind of this conglomerate of a lot of Stoic, of Stoic philosophy in general. Like he he Mm -hmm. is 
very clearly a stoic philosopher within this series. But this quote feels very, very familiar to me. And I don't know if it's because it's been mentioned before in the series or if it has been plucked from it's a very similar specific, to like a specific other quotes. Okay. It's, it's similar to the like sins of your father quote and like other like ideas of like just the sort of general like path of redemption and like the availability of that it's it's there is definitely some reference in here something very similar inside of dante's inferno and i didn't look ahead of time to try to pull a quote but it is i would i would pin it up at the latest reference there are likely earlier references to like the christian guilt era of of early catholicism okay sounds good it's close in that range fair there are likely thoughts that predate that but at the very latest i would say it echoes that gotcha diomedes comes in with another killer quote because the man cannot be stopped he says you told me once that we have forgotten who we are lysander you are right we are not kings we were never meant to be we are shepherds shepherds do not rule they guide they nurture they protect because they know it is not the shepherds who produces its flock without the flock we are just beggars with sticks and esoteric rites it is our time to find humility, to show that we are more than autocrats. I need you to be the man that you claim to be, Lysander. And, and it's almost as though he's like calling out to him saying like, dude, say what you mean. Say what you mean. Be who you mean. But I think he's also calling out the rim as well. Like, yeah, entirely. Yeah, he, he's he's recognizing the society that they can the be better as well. So mm -hmm. I, I love that this seems to ring Lysander's bell a little bit and it very much feels like if anything were to get through to him in this moment it would be a quote like this yeah it's fascinating to have Diomedes be the intermediary here too like we have these three factions that have existed in the story they're all in the same room they get to have this conversation that feels very grounded and mm -hmm. it just it's there's a lot of meat on the bone that's why we've been talking about this for like 40 minutes or something but there like, is uh, but at ugh. the same time this is still pretty counter to the republic in general. Uh, <laughs> so it does kind of. It does I, kind I don't of think it fully is. Close Darrow off of this conversation. It does, though, because it, it still requires some sort of hierarchy and some inherent position of gold society, like of golds within the society, as opposed to a a universally equal republic. I don't think it necessarily does from Diomedes' perspective. I think he's trying to relate it to him, right? Okay. And try to give him the perspective that he's trying to share. Being like, we need to, we we sought the the thrones and the crowns, but in reality, we should have been actually using the crooks to guide people. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're rulers. It means that you're leaders. Leaders are not necessarily by by definition rulers. Mm -hmm. So I think that what Diomedes is striving for here is something akin to saying like gold should flow into the background. We have these like holy bloodlines. Sure. And we shouldn't demand respect of people just because they're these whole were these holy things. We should earn the respect of people to be better within society. Like to me, it turns it from autocratic into, oh, my God, meritocratic. Right. Like it, it changes it from something that is autocratic into like a meritocracy where it's like. 
Gold or anyone should be earning the place to lead and earning the place to be a shepherd. We've been handed it. We've failed. And so if we want to pick it up again, we got to be the examples to pick it up. Okay. I can get to me. That. I, I think that yeah, like, no, that, that's that, his argument. That, that does make sense. Darrow and stretches I, I it a bit would, because that, he kind of like tries to meet in the middle way more than I think even Diomedes was suggesting. Yeah. I think Diomedes' argument here would fit actually very, very well within the Republic and within the system that they've set up where there are a number of representatives of each color within leading roles. So ideally, you're, I think you're right. I think that might be what he's – I don't know. I don't know that that's what he's striving for, but I think it fits. It feels uh, – to me, to me, it feels like that's – a thing or like an end goal that he sees in his head could it be what he's preaching for could it not be it's tough to know without his perspective but i think that he sees validity and that he's not going to turn against the daughters or the volk in his promises so i think that to the point that we earlier talked about with him threading that needle as far as a line forward i think this is him doing it or at the very least making an argument for how he can achieve it Mm -hmm. or it could be achieved on a small s societal perspective. Yeah. And this scene just never relents, PJ. Lysander and Darrow finally confront something quietly held throughout the scene between the two of them, even with all of the refer- references to Arcos that we talked about previously in Stoneside. Darrow, Lysander says here, Darrow, you would really consider this? Even though I killed Alexander? To which Darrow replies, we were overlooking Tyche as the waves came in when Alexander asked go down to save people who called him the enemy. I know what he'd want if he were here today. It's a perfect and touching response. <laughs> I Fucking was very pleasantly surprised by the way that this uh, little little sub-interaction worked out. Shove the true Arcos honor right down the fucking fake Arcos's throat. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, ugh. Heir of Arcos, right, is the name of that chapter. And I think so. It, it definitely is. I, I, that was that was rhetorical. The Air of Arcos <laughs> is the name of that chapter. <laughs> it's it's clear that despite being deceased, there is an Air of Arcos, and Darrow, at the very least, is acknowledging the potential for redemption in Lysander as a yep. possibility. A lot more this than the- I would have guessed would have come out here. <laughs> ever given him especially at the beginning especially the way that this goes he still doesn't like the idea but he can understand and he can see a reality in which he could make it and this could be a thing and they could settle not for spheres of influence which is what lysander i think kind of says like oh well we're gonna be like a small like dominion on some planets or something but instead like a true democratic equal so it even feels like Lysander is kind of leaving this on an uneven foot versus what Darrow is seeing as a concession. But, you know, it takes time for a fascist oppressor to realize that maybe they could come down a notch or two, especially when that's the only thing that they know when that's reality. So, right. ooh, man. So we end this week, this chapter, our penultimate moment of the Red Rising series so far with Lysander leaving to contemplate his choices that are in front of him, with Darrow finds a listening bug on his shirt, clearly from Cassius, that damn Bologna. Diomedes catches something in the air 
some sort of silent thing that he just notices like i don't know some guy with a 20 perception check like a nat 20 roll and quickly dissuades darrow from action when a blade is pulled against his throat and gaia rounds the corner i am in awe with their ability to stay the dust makers ability to stay quiet and undetected even even gaia at such an old age but Darrow, I think, mentions early on that he checked the space himself. Like he, it's as they're exiting. To be fair, so there's a there's a question of like, but they descend from the ceiling. Moving. Like they they were in there, right? They probably like crawled up a tunnel wall, and then okay, as they're moving okay, out okay. of the tunnel, right, they're caught in that tunnel. That's not yeah. to say that they didn't hear what was going on or what happened. For the record, yeah. either I'm not dissuading that necessarily, but still, like they're they're intense. And it also <laughs> makes that interaction that Lyria had that much more impressive. True. Yeah. Where she survived only losing a hand. <laughs> 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 Which it feels pretty bad, but mm-hmm. yeah. Well, well, yeah. well. What's going on here? PJ, closing thoughts for, you know. I mean, it's not, we're not like, I, I'm feeling like I'm approaching this like the last time we're going to talk about this. This is not the last time. There will be a last time. And we are quickly approaching that in eventuality, in the curve of reality. We are approaching that last time. But we've got one week left with Lightbringer here before we enter our postseason with it. And then the first law afterwards. But I have to ask you, how the fuck do you think that this ends? Where do we go from here with this book yet with the next 50 something pages i like to think that lysander sees some reason in this meeting like and and, like it truly feels very binary in how he reacts to this meeting It, it is either accept it and kind of come into the fold of this this strange bedfellow situation that darrow and diomedes have found themselves in or reject it entirely and uh basically take the nuclear option and decimate the rim like it it doesn't feel like there's a very uh reasonable middle middle ground that lysander could really take somehow somehow that and i i i think I think Lysander is going to, at the very least, try to take this out and and see where this will take him. Because I, I think he'll realize that this is an even more direct path to peace than following Atlas's plan. Should, yeah. So better than the theater, this is like a reality, right? Like he's he's mm-hmm. got the confrontation between reality and theater. And like this is if he wants to be the peace bringer that he claims to be, this is his moment to take it, to admit to everything one way or another. Like he doesn't necessarily even need to outwardly admit to it, but and inwardly he, he can acknowledge lead. it. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Like he could still hold he wouldn't be on the morning throne, gold spot. Of course. Yeah. Within within the Republic, if, but a shepherd if can to... lead from underneath, and that's what I think he fails to realize. Right that's now, true too, you know. But I, yeah. but at the very least, like he can hold some control over the gold sentiment. Mm-hmm. 
if he's the one elected into the Republic. Think about Cicero's buy-in, right? Like Cicero would immediately buy in on this idea. No question. Like he wouldn't flinch. Totally. Because it mirrors the honor that he's presenting just in a different facet. Might take a little bit of shaking to get like palace around. There there would be be problems. Convincing to be made. Yeah. Yeah. You might have to. I mean, talking about weird confrontations, think about the Bologna ships that are there, right? Like, what do you do when Cassius shows up in the middle of that? You know, being like, this person is not an actual Bologna. I'm a real Bologna. <laughs> what are you going to yeah. do? <laughs> yeah, so that's true, too. So, yeah. So much potential. So much potential. All right, Peach, we are going to end this episode so you can go finish the book because you're probably going to do that right now. I know. I'm expecting a phone call. But with that, next week, we will end part four, brothers, reading chapters 83 through the end. We've got seven chapters to round out this story. So here it goes. Here it goes. Here it goes. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as always, Tim and Andrew, for really, really being the backbone of the show. Truly. Check out. All our links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, our Patreon, previous episodes, websites, social media accounts, all in one very nice, easy, convenient location. Beyond that, make sure that you leave us a review, a five-star review, preferably, or else we will wrap you up in the black pasta called Piriferos and cut you off at the waist. If you want to follow us on the aforementioned social media accounts and you can't be bothered to click on the show notes, you can find us at Words Whiskey Pod on Threads and Blue Sky. Instagram, Reddit. I think that's all of them. You can email us at wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com. You can join our very, very fun Patreon community where we truly like 100% of my social media time is on our Words and Whiskey Discord. Like 80% of mine is. Yeah. Yeah. You gain access to that through patreon.com slash wordsandwhiskey. We have been saying that we'll find another method of distributing T-shirts beyond T Public, but we haven't done that yet. So follow the link and join. Give us like a, a quarter of a cent and buy a T-shirt. At <laughs> Absolutely, make sure that you do that for us for sure. Beyond that, if you have anything else or anything else is going on, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Any other feedback or anything like that. We're so excited. We're approaching the end game of not only this book, but then again of the sort of wrap up season that we'll have a couple of different guests coming on for some wrap up episodes. So we aren't done with Red Rising. It'll be similar to Dark Age where we'll have a couple of episodes in post. But after that, First Law is up next. So mm-hmm. get prepared. Mentioned um, he's I know. already been reading the First Law and I'm so excited. I'm so excited to jump in. This is the only time that I've ever given you a tease of any of the books that we're reading. So you got, true. got a taste. Episode got a taste. one we could record tomorrow, in theory, but mm. not quite. You've got a couple of chapters there, technically, <laughs> that we didn't read. But you haven't broken it down yet. <laughs> no, no. I kind of have. I have a vague idea. Anyway, with that, we'll see you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>